Welcome to Hanging On For Hope. I'm your host, Andrea Page. Hanging On For Hope is the story is about people working to overcome trauma and adversity. From incarceration to kids in crisis, postpartum depression, acute grief and loss, and serious health challenges, we hear from everyday people on what they are going through and how they get through it. We also hear from experts on the latest strategies, supports, treatment, and brain science for overcoming adverse life experiences and improving quality of life. The human experience is influenced by so many things. Together, we can learn to overcome the more difficult aspects of life while seeking personal, social, and political justice. This week's guest is Kelly McNabb, a mother of three children, one of whom was lost tragically by murder September 20th, 2018. I met Kelly about two years ago in an online group for mothers of incarcerated sons, and we became huge supports for one another by phone and online through our sons' ups and downs. For the last year, her and her other children, 25 and 4, have been working through grief and life as it is now. Losing a child is one of the most painful things a human being could face, as it does not feel like the natural course of things. Grief can also trigger a lot of trauma, and Kelly is still also needing to be a mom. Today, Kelly and I are going to talk about how she navigates motherhood in the face of acute grief. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. So here we are kind of being formal, but really we're close friends. Um, I've wanted to, I've interviewed other people. um, And the truth is in terms of talking about this aspect of life, you're probably the person I speak to the most. So it's, it's, I'm glad that we're finally getting to do this and kind of share the insights of our really wonderful conversations about navigating really a really troubling aspect of life that not everybody has to face. Um, Watching you go through this over the last year and a bit now, I've been in awe of you on so many occasions. Um, And yet I know that you're not superwoman. I know you're hurting and you're you're navigating this all. But can you tell me um, a little bit just about Isaiah and your son and the months leading up to uh, when we lost him? Um, And then let me know a little bit how you're coping. Yeah, um, so Isaiah had been incarcerated. He was sentenced in November of 2017. So just about two years ago, he was sentenced um, to a, a prison sentence of two years. He ultimately served just about just over seven months, and then he was granted day parole. Um, and leading up to that, he'd had a bit of a rough patch I should say I should go back a little bit it, w- it was the only time he was ever charged it was his first offense um, he was he was having a bit of a rough patch he was sort of figuring out what he was going to do next with his life um, he was still finishing up high school he was doing that through an adult education center he had done some co-op he had had a job um, but he was still kind of navigating where he was going in life and how mm-hmm. he was going to get there he had hit a bit of a rough patch and he was um, not always in contact with myself. He wasn't living at my home at that time. He wasn't always in contact with myself or his sister. Um, but, you know, it was it was like anytime we were all together or, or he was with one of us, we could just pick up like nothing had happened. Um, and so then in, in May of 2017, I had detectives show up at my door looking for him. Um, And during that time, you know, I reached out to Isaiah and really said, you know, I'm going to be here for you and I'm going to do everything that I possibly can for you. Um, And from the time he turned himself in until the time that he ultimately pled guilty, 
um, and, you know, went to prison, we, it was like everything, you know, just kind of came back for our family. It was like, mm-hmm. he, you know, saw that we loved him unconditionally and we were always going to be there for him. And then when he was sentenced, um, he, you know, when he was away, we were all frequently in contact. Um, you know, I think it, he really saw who was going to be there for him of his family and his good friends and who he could count on and really saw that, you know, this wasn't the place for him to be. He didn't want to be there. He, you know, didn't want to necessarily do anything that would get him there again. Um, So when he was granted day parole, that meant that he would live at a halfway house. It was here in Kitchener. It's actually not even all that far from my house. Um, So that was June 28th. Um, of when he arrived at the halfway house, June 28th of 2018. Um, And so then we had a really awesome summer together. Obviously he was bound by some conditions. He had a curfew um, and he couldn't, you know, leave the region and stuff, but we made the most of it. We were as a family, um, you know, me, my older daughter, Claudia, who's 24, my little one, Amari, who was three at the time, um, you know, we just, we had this awesome summer whenever we could all be together. And then when Claudia wasn't in town, cause she lives in a different city, we would, you know, it would be me, him and Amari. And we were just, you know, just the simple things that we couldn't do before yeah. gone were, you know, family barbecues and just hanging out. And sometimes him and I, after Amari went to bed, we would just be hanging out, sitting here and we'd be both on our phones but we were together and it was because, you know, when he was gone away, we had to talk on the phone so, so much because that's the only thing we could do when he was in prison. And uh, sometimes it was nice for us to just, you know, hang out together. And it was an awesome summer because for the first time he was like chefing it up for me and cooking (laughs) me all this food and barbecuing and, you know, making these awesome steaks. And he just knew how to season everything. He had actually worked in the kitchen when he was in prison and um, had learned a lot of tricks about how to season things with like minimal, you know, ingredients and stuff. Um, Do you feel like those months that you had with him after him being incarcerated, do you feel that tragedy or in this, because you know, that was a tragedy in of itself, right? Not having your son with you and grieving him being away and all of the events that led up to that moment in life, which I actually would like to even go back further with you. But do you right. think when you got him home, you were also really grateful? Because I, I feel like the more I've gone through in life, I really am so grateful for like the simple things now, like the simplest, simplest things. Um, it sounds like yeah. we're all really appreciating one another and healing. Yeah, no, very, very much so. And I think he had a different outlook on life. He was, I mean, he was still young. He was still 20. He still, you know, had a lot of growing up to do and he would have had maturing to do, but he had learned pretty quickly who mattered in his life and who he was going to put his time and energy into and where he was not going to put his time and energy. And it was like, you know, of course he still wanted to see his good friends. You know, he had a girlfriend he wanted to see his girlfriend, but it was like family was such a huge priority to him at that time. And it was just natural and it wasn't forced. And it was, it was just like a lot of stuff had clicked for him about who mattered and what mattered. So I would love if you could go back further because, you know, I really, anytime uh, I tell a story and someone's been incarcerated, 
I want people to know who that person was and know a bit of their story and how things got to where they were. Can you tell me just a little bit more about Isaiah, the little boy and the things that he was going through and the things that he was struggling with? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, so he, I mean, he was the second of two children. Uh, my little one obviously didn't come along for a long time. There's a big age gap between them. For So for most of his life, he was the baby of the family. Um, he was the, the little brother. Um, and for one, school never came that easy to him. Um, he had to really work at it. And as you know, when he was in elementary school, but the later parts of elementary school, his grades were really not doing so well. And so we had had him tested for a range of um, learning disabilities and, and you know, everything from, I, I guess, maybe ADHD. I can't remember the specifics, but there was a lot. And everything sort of came back as, you know, quote unquote normal, um, except his reading and writing was a little bit, about a year behind where it should be. And they had also determined that he was an auditory learner. And so, cause he was 13 at that time, but his auditory, there were like three components. He was functioning at the level of an 18 year old and two of them and a 15 year old and the other. And so it was like, it made a lot of sense. It was like, okay, this is why as, you know, reading materials and responding to things have become, you know, kind of where they're getting their marks in those upper grades kind of made sense why he was falling behind. So we had an IEP created and, you know, he could, an option would be, you know, instead of doing like a book report, he could do maybe like a YouTube video, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that sort of thing. However, one thing with Isaiah is he was always a really, really popular kid. Um, he was kind of like, he had friends from every kind of group and people knew him and they recognized him. And so that was created in the eighth grade. And even as he was going into the ninth grade, it still carried with him this IEP. However, he wouldn't take advantage of anything. Um, there were accommodations made, like if he was going to do a test, you know, he could go to a different room and a, there would be someone there to sort of like read the question to him. Mm -hmm. And then he could, you know, I think he would still have to write to respond, but just so that he could comprehend it better, what the question was asking, um, you know, extra time for tests, he wouldn't take advantage of any of it. Um, because he was popular, I think he felt like there were a lot of eyes on him. He didn't want to stand out. He didn't want well, to... He, Right. So yeah. what's interesting, yeah. sorry, I just want to interject because as you know, that this is an area of interest for me, uh, the links between children who struggle in the education system, whose behavior gets criminalized. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting too, because I think it's also what I'm observing, how things are pitched. Like, you know, just because somebody learns in an auditory level doesn't, or is that's where their improved learning is, doesn't mean that they have a disability. It's actually a learning no. difference, right? Exactly. Uh, no, exactly. But the way that it's pitched socially and the way that we do not support the emotional health of boys makes it very difficult for boys to accept extra help. So there's all of these kind of this underbelly of what kind of drives a vulnerable boy's behavior down a path, right? Um, yeah. I'm sure as a parent, you reflect back on those times and you're like, well, if this had been done, if that had been done, right? The things you've learned along the way. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I do, I do have to say he had, for the most part, some really great teachers. He had good support in terms of special education teachers um, at the high school and different guidance counselor. It's just, you know, and, and I, he, I also had him enrolled in an 
uh, program that his sister did as well. It's called Pathways to Education. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of benefit to that program. There was a worker, I can't remember what the title is, what they call them, but they are somebody who connects the school, the parent, and that. So you just have that extra person to go to. And then the kids meet with them weekly. Um, and they would have bus tickets and they would have um, tutoring and mentoring. So they had access to so much through this program. And so Isaiah would do things, but even his worker said to me, you know, Kelly, his popularity really works against him. And she said, because he's self-conscious because of it. Um, he knows that people will notice. He knows that somebody could make fun of him, right? And he's, he's not going to fly under the radar when he's leaving the room during tests to go to a special room and so you know she I remember her saying to me he's it just really works against him yeah. um and so he would he was gradually falling behind and behind in school because you know grade nine is is a breeze compared to say a grade 10 year and a grade 11 and a grade 12 and um so it just kept and and then you know he would also if he was in class and felt uncomfortable, you know, he wouldn't say that he would be the class clown and do something, get kicked out of class. And then he didn't have to deal with it. So school was just falling behind and behind and behind. Um, and then in the 11th grade, when it was like, Oh my goodness, like these marks are crazy. It's not working. He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't. Um, and there were some behavioral things going on um, outside of that. There was some, a lot of emotional stuff that he was dealing with. Um, he had oh, a yeah tell me more sorry. about that yeah when he was when he was young like when he was 15 he had had his his grandfather died his paternal grandfather who he was like his he, he and his sister were extremely close with the paternal grandparents it was more like a dad figure to him in a lot of ways um so he passed away from cancer and then within but a month and a half to two months, his grandmother, his paternal grandmother, um, she had already had Alzheimer's. She'd been diagnosed a few years before, but with the death of her husband, she just, she went really downhill. And so she was hospitalized and never came out of the hospital. She went into a long-term care facility eventually. Um, and then his sister, my daughter, uh, about a month and a half after that, she moved away and she went to university. Uh, she went to a different city. And so it was like, all these people were just kind of like leaving his life in different ways. And he was 15, 15 is a rough age, no matter mm -hmm. what's going on, I find. Um, and so he was really, really, he was in his room a lot and he wasn't going out and seeing his friends much. And at that point it was just him and I living in the house. And I remember saying like, he had his longboard and he liked longboarding and, and stuff. And I would just remember saying like, Hey, why don't you go see your friends? Why don't you? Cause I, you know, it was starting to worry me. That wasn't him. He's a social person. He's been one of those people since he was a small child. He didn't want to play on his own. He didn't want to whatever, like he always wanted to be around people. And so I saw that changing and it was like, no, like go see your friends and, you know, do this. Why don't you go to the movies, visit your friend, you know, whatever. Um, and so one thing I had done is I had visited a counselor and I talked to her, you know, about everything that was going on with him and the changes I was seeing um, in his behavior and his attitude and that sort of thing. And she gave me a recommendation of, you know, sort of a younger guy who was a counselor that really often can connect with, with young men. And, um, you know, I talked to Isaiah about it and I, he was, no, no, no. And I'm not doing that. And, you know, and then I also said, well, why don't we That's get so you a 
Right. And so I also was like, why don't we get you a tutor at least? And, you know, cause it, the subject that he was sort of doing the worst in was math. And I mean, he needed, he honestly could have used a tutor for every subject at that point. But I said, you know, why don't we start with math and, you know, I'll, I'll it doesn't have to be this formal thing. Like I can get you a university student that's just looking to tutor. And, and I remember him saying to me, if I walk in this house and, and there's someone sitting at the table, cause I said to him at one point, well, you know what? Like, you're not going to have a choice. You're just going to come home and there's going to be somebody waiting and you know, you're going to help you. And him saying, if I walk in this house and there's someone there, like I'm walking right back out that door and blah, blah. And you know, looking back, I think between the counseling and that, I probably should have pushed it more, but I also felt like it was that fine line and I didn't know if I was going to lose him and so right and so and, yeah and, and, so and then, I hear this story from you know it's interesting because when people are judging others in life and because I you know work and talk these and tell these stories you know I see people who have tough loved their children into worse worse situations I've seen people who have lovingly no matter who the parent was and what they were they were trying to help their child mm -hmm. you are trying you're navigating so much like a human being's personality their circumstances yeah. like all of these different things that you're navigating sometimes there's no right answer to yeah. be honest. like I, and i see that right like you can you don't know what's going to push someone who's already struggling no well and that's that's how i felt and there was also a lot going on where, you know, there was a, a, a family member that he loved very, very much who was struggling with their own mental health and not really available to him at how he wanted them to be. And, you know, so he was just like a hurt little kid inside, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and then when it came to grade 11 and things were just going down the toilet and it was like, oh my gosh, he's just going to fail everything at this point. I spoke with the vice principal who, you know, she was such a lovely person, his vice principal. Like she would call me sometimes and like, it would be his behavior. Like he had been a, a smart ass to his teacher or, you know, whatever. And she'd say, Kelly, I hate making these calls because he's just a, such a respectful young man. But, you know, <laughs> for the most part, all right. And then she would have to tell me what he did and what the consequences were. And I mean, because he was just for the most part, like 95% of the time, very respectful to his elders, very, you know, and he was always so good with the VP and she, she, she loved them. Right. And so, you know, eventually I spoke with her and I just said, what can we do here? Like, this isn't working. This normal high school thing is just not working for him. He is going off the rails and, you know, his behavior at home was not working. Like it was just him and I were constantly in conflict and, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it was just, I, I didn't like living like that. He didn't like living like that. And then it sounds so so, I, I say it sounds so exhausting. Like I haven't been there, but right. And it's so frustrating yeah. because, you know, you want to support your child, but you, you don't necessarily even have the answers or even if you have the answers, the support systems aren't there to help you manifest what it is that well and i you know and i really i i i think now i look back and i really was trying to do a lot on my own and i think it's sort of um like 
this is my responsibility, this is my son. And Isaiah was a really private person. And so he didn't like people knowing what was, you know, like he didn't like people knowing his business. And even so, like that's even why when I'm talking to you right now, you know, there's only so much I'm willing to say just simply for the fact of respecting his privacy. Got it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything that I know that, that I think he would be uncomfortable with. Um, you know, like there's definitely more to the story. It's just, it's just things that I think, you know what, I just out of respect for him, I don't think he would want me to talk about. Yeah, no, that um, makes total sense. Um, yeah. And, and so he did go into an alternate learning program um, that he was at a community center and it was a little um, slower paced and there was, you know, but the child youth care worker that worked there, she's like, she absolutely loved him, but they were going through the same thing. Like he, at this point he was so unhappy to be out of regular school, not being with his friends. Like it was just a recipe uh, for disaster. And at this point I was also nine months pregnant. Um, and um, so he was, you know, at home and he would go to his, his program during the day for part of it. Um, but it, everything just came to a head, um, you know, when my little one, his little sister was about six weeks old and it was just like, we needed to find a different solution. Um, wow. So, he so you have a he ultimately, six, you have a six week old baby and you've got a kid who's in crisis. Yeah. And it was, it was just one of those things where, you know, I just, I wanted him to be happy and I wanted him to um, flourish. And I just, I didn't want, I was like, if, if I am not the solution, I, am, I, I don't have any, I don't have an ego involved in this. What I care more is that you do well in life. So if someone else can better support you, if you'll be happier somewhere else, then go. But it's simply not working what we're doing here. This dynamic is not working. And so ultimately he did go live with a family member. Um, and he would, like, we would see each other and we would visit. Um, at first there was a bit of a gap before we saw each other. Um, but then, you know, we were on that thing where we would see each other. And sometimes there'd be a little bit of gap where we didn't see each other, but we would text and we would call. And so it was sort of like that for just over a year. Um, at some points he did live with me for short periods again, and then he would go back to the family member or sometimes he was living at a friend's house. Just, you know, it was, it was a little chaotic. Um, he was still trying to figure out a lot. I mean, he was quite young. He was 17 and 18 at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so, you know, then that's what kind of brought us to 2017, um, was when, and, and like during that time, like I said before, like he was actually doing some schooling, he was working a co-op job, like he was doing the things he needed to do in order to finish his education. And we were going to figure out like what kind of came next. He was also, um, you know, going out with friends a lot and partying and not always leading the most productive life. He went through phases. Right. Which I think is a very common experience for a lot of young men today to be honest. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. It's not a conversation that people want to have, but you know, it is, it is a very common experience for young men, you know? And I think, you know, some men are more vulnerable than others with having that behavior criminalized. There's also that piece, right? So, yeah, for sure. you know, so now you're, you, I don't know if you want to talk about where, you know, um, or sorry, why um, Isaiah was arrested. 
Uh, and if you don't, that's totally fine. Um, uh, but, oh, no, that's fine. So if you maybe like to just kind of let us know why Isaiah was arrested and then kind of take us back to the last summer. Um, yeah. That you so it was, him. yeah, so it was, it, he was arrested in May of um, 2017. Um, the charge was aggravated assault and assaults. Um, was it assault causing bodily harm? I'm sorry, I'm trying to rack my brain. I think it was assault causing bodily harm was the other one. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a, there was a, a fight at a party uh, that broke out like it was like three, three thirty in the morning. Um, definitely, you know, alcohol and drugs were a factor. Um, he really, you know, got himself in a lot of trouble. It, it was this. It was a serious fight. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't a minor fight. It was a serious fight. Um, there were other people involved aside from Isaiah. He would not give up the names of those people. I, you know, I went, I went to every court thing that he had and they would read out sort of the synopsis of what happened that night. And every time they would say there were three to four unidenti unidentified males involved in this, Isaiah wouldn't give up the names of who his friends were. And so they threw the book at him um, in terms of, so he did a plea bargain and pled guilty. The Crown was still asking for three years um, his lawyer argued for two two years, exactly two years, plus two years probation, because there's this little type thing. Usually you can't get probation if you're, it's a federal sentence, but if it's exactly two years, there's like some clause where you can do that. So his lawyer sort of argued that under that, although there's less time incarcerated, there's more time in, under supervision, if that makes sense. Um, and so without that, the Crown, without, if Isaiah had not have pled guilty, the Crown was going to ask for four to five years. And this was his first wow. offense. He had no, he didn't even have a juvenile record. And I know that that wouldn't factor in. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they completely, he threw the book. He wouldn't give up the names of those guys. And I, I remember, I remember saying to him one time, I don't suppose giving up those names is even an option. And he said, nope. And that, cause that was Isaiah. Isaiah was a loyal friend to a fault. Like it was, there was even no point in me trying to argue with him about like giving up those names because I just knew it wasn't going to happen. Right. It's that and, code, right? Well, you know what? It's not even just a code. I just think like Isaiah was such a loyal friend. And if you were his friend, there is no way he would want to see you go down for like anything. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, no, very even, much if, even, even if people wouldn't do that for him, he would have done that. Like in his head, mm -hmm. that's not an option because if they don't have the names, why would I do that? And so Fair that, that was, you know, and it was like, as much as I wanted to just like shake his head at the same time, I just, I just knew that there was no reasoning and we just needed to move on and look what the options were for what we were facing. And so then he ultimately like, that's where we got to November. It was November 17th of 2017. Um, he got out and then we spent that um, summer together and um, so when he was incarcerated, he first went to Maplehurst and Milton because they keep them there before they transfer them to the federal facility. And I did see him a few times in there. The first time I went and saw him, he didn't know I was coming. He could not even look me in the eye. Um, it, for visiting purposes, he had to put on like an orange jumpsuit and he could not even look at me. He said, why did you come? I told you not to come. 
And it wasn't that he was, he was so embarrassed that I was seeing him like that. And I said to him, Isaiah, I've literally changed your diaper. Like, I don't care. And he just like, he could barely even look at me. Um, he just kept looking down. Like we had to talk on phones. Um, you know, the, when I ended up seeing him the next week, like he wasn't upset with me. He was just so uncomfortable and he was just embarrassed. And, um, the next week though, when I went to see him, it was like, okay, well, that, like we talked on the phone and stuff. And he's like, well, yeah, I didn't want you to see me like this, but you know, okay, come again. You know? So I came and like, we had a really nice visit and then he went to federal custody and, you know, um, I did apply. I was approved to see him. There were a, like when he got to his you know mother institution where he was going to serve the bulk of his time. There were a whole bunch of lockdowns um, due to people overdosing, so they would have to you know shut things down and search for the drugs. Um, and then he he had said to me he didn't want me to come. Um, he said I don't want anybody coming. He said he said specifically with me. He said it's going to be too hard when you get up and you turn and walk out that door and I can't come with you. And he didn't want things to kind of like break him, you know, like make him break emotionally. Um, so we had an agreement that we would see because we knew his parole hearing was coming up in June. And so we had an agreement. He said, if he didn't get parole, then yes, please come visit me over the summer. And if I do, well, then I'll see you when I'm out. And that's what ended up happening is he got, he was granted a day parole. Um, and so, um, yeah, so he was at the halfway house for the summer and he was there um, on uh, September 20th, um, when he actually was murdered, he was there at the halfway house. Um, at that point he was working a, well, even more than a full-time job. Actually, he was in the construction industry doing cleanup, um, at some student housing that had been built. And it was just like, he was putting in these crazy hours and working overnight, just working so hard. Um, and we were starting to talk about sitting down, like in the next, like three, four weeks, um, kind of looking at the local college, looking at what courses we're going to, you know, he was not necessarily going to start this year, but we were going to look at like, what path can we get you on? Cause he knew he wanted to go to school. He wanted to um, get some more education. We, he knew that he needed, he only actually needed two credits to finish his high school um, and do that and get his, you know, college underway. Um, he had a girlfriend that he loved very much and he was, um, you know, very in with our, he was, the happiest that I had seen him in years. And you know, what I'm thinking about as you're telling me this story, I'm thinking about stigma. I'm thinking about how silly it is because there are so many people who have gone through things and have gone down bad paths who try to recover, to heal mm -hmm. from traumatic events in their life, to, to right their wrongs, so to speak, right? And yep. you try and you, when you see somebody who's trying and succeeding, like it's so, and I bring this up because one thing that we will talk about is, you know, you know, your experience of how people have supported you in the last year and, and even the backlash that, that a mom of an incarcerated son, you know, mm -hmm. it, it is, it's so frustrating to me because I hear this story and I think, here was this, your beautiful little boy who went through some crazy life experiences, um, some that he could cope with and some that he couldn't. And he made some mistakes for sure. And then he was trying to right his wrongs. Like he was trying to do what all of us want to do, right? Be a better person. Yes. Yep. And, and then that, and then that gets interrupted. Yes. 
Yep. And I would say like more than that, it's more like he just, he just wanted to get back on the path that he was supposed to be on. You know, like it was like, he just kind of like veered and tried some stuff on his own and that didn't really work out for him. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go back to the path that I know and what feels authentic and real to me. Cause it was like, he was his true self again. When I, I just wanted to share this like thought while it came in my head when I was at his memorial this year and I heard all the young men, particularly that spoke about Isaiah. Mm-hmm. I was just so impacted by the positive effect he had on the other men in his life. That he yeah. was this kind person, this safe person, the person that you could let your guard down with. Yeah. Um, which was not, is, is not the norm for a lot of circles of young men and boys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So... Let's, let's, let's go to that day, September 20th, 2018. Mm-hmm. So that's a day that has changed your life forever. Yeah. And it, it just, it started out like pretty much any other day. Um, him and I were texting that morning. Um, we were actually texting about some, a bank account. He needed to set up a new bank account. And we were just texting back and forth about that, um, just just around 10 a.m. Um, and then, uh, you know, the morning passed, and I was here. I'm, I'm self-employed, so I'm at home during the day. And um, it was Kelly, just before. One second. Can yep. you just say I'm self-employed again and start because it just literally cut out? Oh, okay. Um, I I'm self-employed. And um, so I was here and it was just around one o'clock, just maybe minutes to one o'clock and I was going to have some lunch and I looked on my phone and I saw a news story and it said that there had been a shooting at King and Pandora um, streets here in Kitchener. And um, the halfway house was right at, is right at that intersection. It's at a corner. And uh, I thought, oh my gosh. Like, this is really, really close. And, you know, I, I, I scanned it and I looked at it and, you know, I was like, okay, no. And in my head, I'm like, okay, I haven't heard from Isaiah. This is weird. Um, you would think if there was a shooting right in that area, because he was off that day. He wasn't working that day and he was at the halfway house. And I knew he had been awake at 10. And I thought, like, he would have called me and told me that this happened. Um, so I looked for another article. And this one gave more detail and it said it was at the halfway house and it actually showed uh, there's picnic tables outside near the corner of the parking lot. And it showed a picture of um, someone laying on the table. Um, you couldn't see the, their actual body, but there was, cause there was a tarp over them. Um, but then I realized that the shooting had been at the halfway house on that picnic table. And I knew Isaiah would video call me so much during the summer. Um, he would just randomly video call me and he'd be sitting at the picnic table out there and we'd be chatting. And I knew that he sat at that picnic table and it was a nice day. And I started looking for reasons that instead of, you know, it was like, I knew from that moment, I just, I knew it was him. And I kept, I started looking for reasons of why it wouldn't be him, but everything was like, this isn't making, this isn't adding up. He hasn't, so I was texting him and I was calling him and I wasn't getting an answer. 
um, I had my, um, th then I called the halfway house itself. They have a general number to call and nobody answered. And I knew that that wasn't right because that's the same number that these guys, when they're on parole, they have to call in and tell them every address that they're at when they make moves during the day. And it was like, it didn't make sense that that number wasn't being answered. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually I, I started having some of my family members. I got my mom involved. I got my sister involved and my brother-in-law involved. Um, my older daughter, you know, calling the halfway house, calling Isaiah, texting him. Um, eventually I had a friend and she called uh, the police here and was trying to get information, um, but just nothing was working out. And I would occasionally try to call Isaiah, but it was just, it was really scaring me that, because um, eventually then his phone was just, it was going straight to voicemail. And it was just like, what is going on here? And all I could think is the only thing that could be, if this isn't him, is that he witnessed something is at the police station and they've made him turn off his you know, his phone. But I still felt like when I, because the shooting, it said that the shooting was around 11 a.m. And at this point, when I first saw it, it was one and hours had passed. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. He would have told me, he would have told me like, you're never going to believe what happened. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you so, know, times passing. Sorry, I, I, I was a person that you messaged. Yes. I just, because I, I still feel that feeling of, so I remember where I was. I remember that it was a Thursday. I remember exactly where I was standing in the room because these are those life events that you don't expect to happen to someone. So when you called me and told me that you were concerned that, or you said, have you seen the news as this has happened? I'm concerned it's Isaiah. My, my protective reaction was it could not be. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want this to be happening to you. <laughs> so yeah, no, it could not be like it was. But and everybody, honestly, even like my, like none of my family members thought even a bit that it was him. Right. They were like trying to, they were trying to talk me down like, Hey, but you had an instinct about it almost. Right. I, it was all, yes, it was, I knew I, from the moment I saw that picture, even though it was not, it was not clear. Like, it's not like I could make out anything about the person. It, there was a tarp over them. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I can't explain it. It was like this part of me and I was trying to search for reasons that it wouldn't be him. Why this wasn't, you know, I was, I was trying to look for like, oh no, no, no. We, you know, he answered me at noon or like something that would say, this is not this person. And I couldn't find any of those things. I couldn't find a way to comfort myself. There was like, everything was getting worse and worse and worse. And so, um, gosh, you must've felt the world closing in at a rapid pace. Cause that instinct as a mother also, right. Yeah. Which I apologize because, you know, I feel like I wanted to tell you it wasn't him because I didn't want it to be him. Yeah. Right. Not because well, and it was, it was, it was disbelief. Like someone had the details said, you know, a white Mercedes has had pulled up and, uh, you know, someone had exited the car and shot someone sitting at the picnic table and then the car had taken off and there had been a police chase. And it was like, no, this one happened to Isaiah. Like, and I got it. Like I get it from everyone's perspective. It was like, this doesn't, no, why would, why would that be Isaiah? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it was just so unexpected, but it was like, this part of me was just, 
you know, it was like this alarm was going off in me. I don't know how to explain it. It was just, you know, it's like when your smoke detector just keeps chirping and chirping and chirping, reminding you like, Hey, your battery's low. Your battery, like, it was like that thing. Like it, there was just this thing in my head. It was like this chirp that was like, uh, 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 like this is bad. This is bad. And I, I remember getting down on my knees and just screaming and like praying to God and saying, please don't let this be my son, not my son, not my son. Like I was begging God, don't let this be my son, you know? And then, and you didn't know yet, eh? You still didn't know. No. And then just before, just before two 30. Um, so at this point, I mean, it had been quite a while and like my sister and my daughter said like, you know, I really think they would have let the family know by now. Like, this is just, you know, this is awful that you can't get a hold of them, but you know, they would have let the family know by now. Cause it's, it's like, you know, three hours have passed at this point. And I was even willing, even though honestly, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't turn that alarm off in my head. It was like, I was willing to listen to reason, right? Cause that sounded like a reasonable conclusion. Um, and then I sat down on my couch and I'll just never forget. It was, it was 227 because I looked, I heard knock, knock at my door, like this intense knock. And I just, I was, and again, I was finding every reason why in my head, why that wouldn't be police at my door. And I was like, Oh, you know, did I order something online? Is there, you know, I I was looking for every reason because I just sat there for a second and then I got up and from my kitchen window you can actually see you know outside and who's at my door because I couldn't go straight to my door and I looked I just I peeked over I had to kind of lean over my sink and I peeked out the window and I could see very clearly that there was someone wearing a suit standing there and I could see the shoulder of the other person wearing a suit and my knee is just like I started shaking because I knew those were detectives and, you know, I went to the door and I walked over and I, I just flung it open and they're standing there. They couldn't even get a word out. And I said, it's him, it's him. And I just kept saying it like louder and higher and just, and their faces were just like, oh gosh, like they didn't expect that. And, you know, I re- remember they said, you know, really gently, like, are you Kelly? And I said, yes, I'm Isaiah's mom. And they said, okay, we're just going to come in. And when they said that and they weren't like denying, no, no, it's not him. You know what? Like I, I was like, why are they at the door? Cause he's the one who shot someone. Like I, there was a million things going through my head at that time. And you know, they, they said, we're just going to come in. And it was like, no, it was like, you know, the world was spinning. My head was, you know, spinning. I remember being on the ground, being up at some points, being in one room, being in another. And they said, you know, we are, we are going to wait. We have to get the confirmation, but we're pretty sure it's him. And I mean, they knew it was him. It's just, they need the official kind of like sign off, like a autopsy fingerprints, like that kind of thing to officially say, um, there was, there was multiple witnesses when he was killed, um, because a, a, you know, a vehicle had pulled up and someone had exited and it was 11 something in the morning. It was 11, 11 in the morning. Exactly. actually, um, there were multiple witnesses. It was caught on surveillance camera. So it was like, they, they knew who it was and he was where people, like people were working that all knew him. Um, it was all where, you know, they knew it was him, but it was just those official things and they have to do things by the book. I get it. Um, so it was, so you can know, I first just check I, in with you for a second? Because yeah. I feel like, wow, like to go through what you went through already, like every, and I, I am so grateful for these details and I just want to make sure 
I want to make sure that you're okay because it, you know, I've gone through yeah, this. No. I've gone through this with you um, and I've heard these details, right? And to to hear it again and to remember this moment and to be there with you, it really is um, a gift that you're giving other people, understanding um, these experiences in life, like that yeah. you don't, you don't, you, no one's prepared for. It's nothing, it doesn't matter what your son was going through, no one is prepared for that moment in life. Oh, not at all. No, not at all. And, um, yeah, it was, it, 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 and, and that's it. Like in, in my memory, like I can remember bits and pieces of what happens, but I remember calling my sister and because I had just been having conversations with my sister where it was like, Oh no, you know, she's like, you know, I think they would have called by now. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I've calmed down. I, you know, maybe they just, it's just a matter of time and they'll call me and you know, whatever. And I remember calling her and I just started screaming, it's him, it's him, it's him. The police are here. And I, I hung up the phone and then she called back and I just handed the, the phone to one of the detectives to talk to her. Cause I couldn't talk. And she said like, she couldn't even understand what I was saying, but she knew it was bad because I was screaming. Right. But she couldn't even understand. So she had a conversation and then she was actually in the car with my brother-in-law and actually my mom was in the car with them as well. And they just headed straight here. Um, you know, and I had, you know, friends and there were phone calls that had to be made and, and that sort of thing. But again, I remember being in certain parts of the house. I remember sitting on the floor, sitting on a chair or sitting on a different chair. Like it was all over and I would, I would kind of come in and out, but I'm sure I was talking during the time. Like it was just, and I remember at some point saying like, no, I don't think it's him. I don't think it's him. You know, and I was talking and, and you could like, I remember that. And I just, mm -hmm. you know, you just go into this protective type thing because I would be screaming and sobbing and, you know, whatever. And then I would turn into this other mode of like, oh, this needs to be done. Crazy, right? be done. The brain is right? so like, interesting, right? The yeah. brain is so interesting in how it responds to trauma and grief, which you and I were talking about re recently are, you know, sometimes confused for the same thing. Mm -hmm. but they're not really the same thing. Grief and trauma, no. right? No. And it's just, I mean, and, and I get it. Like my brain was protecting me because it was just too mm -hmm. much. Right. And it was just like, all of, all of a sudden I'd switch gears and be like, Oh, uh, my little one needs a glass of water and uh, this, and Oh, I need to do this. And then it would just be like, Oh, and just, you know, and it's, you know, I had, there were people, here at the house at this point the detectives were here you know they did say they wanted to talk to me within the next few days and I said like let's just talk now like I don't I don't know where like I I could feel like I like I knew I was hanging on by a thread and I said let's just talk now because I don't know when I'm gonna lose it you know I just I didn't know what was ahead for me and so they were like, okay. And, you know, we, you know, we talked a bit and they interviewed me um, to get any, you know, any information. And then um, they left and, you know, from there it was, it was family. It was, you know, everything, my older daughter, my, my sister and my brother-in-law went drove to St. Catherine's and got her and brought her home. Um, you know, it was, it was one thing after the other, it was trying to get people notified. Um, there had been a, picture taken of Isaiah before the tarp was put on him on the picnic table but after he had actually died um because there was paramedics that had worked on him and and stuff he ultimately was never transported to a hospital he died at the scene um 
and there was a person uh, who had taken a picture of him and circulated it on Snapchat. So like of his dead body, you couldn't see his face, his head was turned the other way, but you know, you could clearly see um, that it was him. You could recognize the clothing if you knew him. And so that was circulated on Snapchat and it, I believe it made its way to Twitter as well. And so some younger siblings of some of Isaiah's friends saw it and were like, oh my gosh, I think this is Isaiah. Or some of his friends saw it. You know, needless to say, I was actually calling his friends, like some of his close friends, to tell him that he had passed. And they already knew um, because wow. of this picture that, that had circulated. And nobody was going to call. There, like, I'll put it this way. Some of the, some people, some of his friends knew before I knew even because of social media because of social media um and so so, so, where do these pictures originate from it was just people on the street is that right yeah it it was a passerby on the street to the best of my knowledge it was a high school student this happened in broad daylight too right I don't because it's happening broad right by a high school as well and so I mean definitely his friends took care of contact finding the original person and being like you need to take this offline and you need to do it now um but it I mean it had made the rounds um I I've seen the photo I asked to see the photo from someone just because if other people had seen it I needed to see it um Mm -hmm. and it was there was a very very disrespectful caption on it it was pretty horrible um but all that to say so we knew like it was like when Claudia when I had to call I had to call my older daughter to tell her because it's it, it was, it, we just, ha- I knew I didn't want other people telling her. And she told me when I, when we got off the phone from that conversation, obviously it was a horrible conversation. That was when the first message came into her saying, like questioning, is this your brother? Cause they had heard it. And so that's how quickly word had been spreading. And so we, you know, she was getting message after message. Nobody was contacting me, but like message after message after message. Is it true about your brother? Is this true? And I know from later getting into Isaiah's social media that people were messaging him during the middle of the afternoon, trying to be like, are you okay? Like, is this, you know, like just trying to check on him. So I saw the timing and people were messaging him before I'd even been told. So word was spreading like crazy. Social Um, media, uh, tragedy in social media times are also so crazy right like these kids yeah. are the pressure yeah. that these young people are living with on a day-to-day basis yeah is just unbelievable to me yeah yeah i mean it was it was just spreading like wildfire and so i said to claudia you know this was like six something in the evening and i said like we've, I, I tried calling some of my close friends and just kind of, and I'm like, I'm not going to reach everybody. Like we need to put something out to people. Um, so she made a public Facebook post because a lot of her messages were coming in through Facebook messenger or Instagram or whatever. And I just said, we need to make a public, like she just wrote something up and said, is this okay? And I said, yeah, because it was like, we couldn't answer everybody. I mean, it was, she was being bombarded. And so she made a public post. Um, and then, you know, I, I just shared it because I just, I was like, this has to get out here. The news is going to name them soon. Um, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, we, we got word out that way and yeah. So over the last year, since your son has passed, you, I, I, I can't imagine how difficult it may have has been 
and probably continues to be to try to grieve and continue to be a mother. Um, it's, I mean, you know, we always talk about all the things we have to balance in life, but this is some pretty heavy stuff to balance. So tell me how you were in the weeks and months after. Tell me about your progress. Tell me what's helped, what's harmed. Yeah. Um, so I think sort of from the, the um, date of his death until definitely, you know, after his funeral and, and cremation, which was just a week and a day, um, it was sort of um, shock, sadness. Um, it's it's hard to describe how things were, but when people say the real grief hits you sort of after everything's done and life goes back to normal, it's the truth. You're you feel grief before that, but when real, true, heavy, heavy grief that's going to stay with you for a while hits you is when you know everything's taken care of and you know you've got to get back to you know real life then the world is still turning and there's still bills to be paid and there's still appointments to be made and that sort of thing but there's this huge gaping hole and you know I, that's true with any death and i think it's just um it's like the volumes turned up and it's it's you know um it's all consuming when it's your child um, it's an, it's an out of order death. It's unnatural to ever see your child's lifeless body. Um, I mean, I can say that when I first, I saw Isaiah's body for the first time three days after he died. And, uh, you know, I already, there was a part of me that had sort of shut down, but it was like the part of me that died and left happened the moment I laid eyes on him in that casket. And I saw that it was really him. And when I saw him there, it was like this scream came out of me and I, like the, I could physically feel whatever it is that left me. It was just, it felt like it started in like my abdomen and just worked its way up my chest and just came out my mouth. And it was like something floated away in that instant. This scream came out of me. I collapsed to the ground. And I, rem I, I mean, I remember hitting the ground and I had my shoes were flats they were slip-ons and they flew off in two different directions and it just you know I just remember that impact of hitting the ground and that scream and it was like something left like I felt like something flew away and it was like that's when that part of me and sort of like I guess who I was at that point it died it was gone and from that moment on I was a different person um you know, there's still obviously parts of me that are still there, but it's just, it's hard to explain. That, that, sounds, all, that sounds very similar to giving birth to me. You know what? It is. It is. And actually the time after Isaiah died, I said to myself, I have never had something that is so like postpartum because it's the same the baby's first born and everybody's visiting and everybody's whatever and you're in la la land and then time goes on and it's like now you have to adjust to real life with this change in your life 
And even though, you know, that's obviously different because, you know, it is a lot of work and there's a lot of um, emotion and, what, and a fog involved, there's also a lot of love involved in that. But that crazy fog, that feeling like you don't know who you are, feeling like you don't know life anymore and you have to figure everything out and, you're, you know, you'll adapt. But at those that first while, that postpartum period where it's so delicate and fragile is what it feels like when your child dies. It's very comparable. It's this fog. It's this, you know, you know, and people are bringing you meals and doing things for you in the same way that they're, you know, doing for you when you've had a baby. Um, but the real grief hit. I, I started back. But then, but then everybody goes back to their regular lives, but you don't. You're well, and that's exactly you, it. You, you're like, what is my life now? Because all I know is that one of my children is now gone and I will never see my child again in this life and it's horrible and the missing them that comes from you know Isaiah was at my house the night before he passed he was a regular here even though he wasn't living here he was here all the time and so it was like going upstairs to the bathroom and oh, his toothbrush is sitting there and his body washes in the shower and oh, there's his deodorant. And, you know, literally the day that he died, I had steaks in my fridge defrosting that we were to eat the next day, right? Like it was like he had seen them the night before and been like, oh, you better not eat those without me. And I was like, trust me, I'm not going to, don't worry, okay? And, you know, so it was just unreal that this stuff was happening. Um, and I started back to work just shy of three weeks. Um, from when he passed because I'm self-employed and I had to. Um, like I said, unfortunately, the world didn't stop revolving. There was still a mortgage payment. There was still, you know, all those things and, and I, there were still payments to be made. Um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't have a leave because I wasn't paying into EI and obviously like I don't have benefits. Um, and, but it was actually one of the best things that I did for myself. The nature of my employment um, you know, meant that I didn't have to go out every day and face the public and interact with them. Like I wasn't, I wasn't out. I didn't need to have meetings with my colleagues. I didn't need to be sending all kinds of emails representing, you know, a, a business or a company. Um, so I was able to um, be really um, flexible with things and it really helped me to have um, things back to normal in terms of a routine. I really thrive on routine. My routine, I had a three-year-old at the time. She needed her routine back. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, I started back to work. And, but by the end of my work day, which was usually around five, you know, I was absolutely exhausted. It was like my nights were, I was barely sleeping. I would stay up till two, three in the morning because, and I can't even tell you what I was doing at that point. Um, I remember like his funeral had been live streamed. And so there was a recording of it. I remember every single day I would watch his funeral, which was like a, just about an hour recording every single night I would watch his funeral. Um, I would sit there and talk to him, like just talk out loud. I would be going through his belongings. I would be looking at pictures on my phone. I would be, you know, I, I can't remember. I was in a real fog. I remember that. And then I just know like, then I would get up in the morning um, and have my day. And then like, I, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't sleep right. I couldn't, you know, I, I could function and do things. Um, but again, it was, it's, it was really going through the motions. I, I did start counseling pretty soon after he had passed about 
six weeks, I think. Um, I started uh, individual counseling. Um, the first session, I, I cried probably 50 minutes of it, of an hour, like, mm -hmm. or a 55 minute session, whatever it was. Like, it was, there was barely any time that I wasn't sobbing. Um, you know, and that at least, I don't know how much that necessarily helped me, but I do know it helped me to have somewhere to go. I was going about every second week. It helped me to have somewhere to go every second week that I knew that I could just bawl my eyes out and um, talk about whatever I needed to talk about. Like it, it helped to me to get some through some bad days that I knew that that was coming up. And I think, you know, the bad days, and, and here's what I've observed in grief, in your grief, if you don't mind me observing, like kind yeah. of out loud, but in the grief of other people that I love, in that the, the tricky part about grief when you really, really love someone is that you almost don't want to feel better because yep. you feel like if you start to feel better, you're letting them go. Yeah, and so it that's feels what I've like I don't I don't know if that's no saying it right. Yeah, no, you're right. So it's like that first wave that hits you after, like I said, like after everybody's kind of gone back to their life and you're trying to live your life again. It is the absolute worst pain. Like I, if I ever had, if I had a choice, like if if somebody was like, oh yeah, yeah, you're gonna go through that again, or you're gonna get. I don't know, run over by a truck or something, I would choose getting run over by a truck because I'd rather have physical pain than what I went through. Um, I, I mean, I still go through lots of grief and I still, but that was, I can't even describe what that felt like. Um, I felt like there's an expression and about child loss where they say like, you feel like you died too, and they just forgot to bury you. And that's what I felt like. I was like, you know, any minute, my heart is just going to give out and not because I was having heart problems. It was like, there's no way that I can feel like this and still keep living. I must be on death's door. Like a I must be about heart, to die. A real broken heart. Like, yeah. a really, really I'm like that's heart. right. It's like, my lungs are just going to stop. My brain is going to stop. Like, there's no way, like I must be in this in-between zone when somebody's about to die. Like, that's how I felt is like, there's no way I'm going to keep going. Um, and, and so I did, and, and, keeping going, and, sorry, yeah. I, you know what, something that you've said to me and you consistently say to me, um, and can we say the other two girls names? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so Claudia and Amari, you talk to me all the time about worrying about how they're doing in all of this yeah. as you're trying to worry about how you're doing in all of this. Yeah. And they're probably even at four and 24, because at the end of the day, it's not just about this, like, you know, and I'm not like hokey because now I just understand energy. It's like, we all feel one another's energy. Like, and you're mm. no, nobody's a robot. Like you can't be a robot in grief. You can't. Yeah. Right. So everybody's feeling each other's energy and you're trying to navigate motherhood. And I would say that those two women, young, a young woman and a grown woman, those are the two reasons that you get up every day now in all of the, even though you've got such a broken heart. Yeah. And I think especially when things were so bad, Bad. and it just was so all-consuming 
because I don't know that it it hurts any less it's just a little bit softer if that makes sense like it's like I would be or like you've got I have <laughs> well I've learned it's softer because I've I'm learning to carry it with me right like and it yeah. is it is it's just nothing will ever be as bad as when I was in the acute phase of that like it was I can't describe what that was like and, you know, when I had this little three-year-old who I realized, like, I would, when I wanted to give up, when I wanted to, whatever, I would think, well, it's like, this is such a traumatic event because she loved her older brother so much. And now he's been ripped out of her life. And if something happens to me, like, how is she going to survive this? Like, it's already tricky enough with what she's had to go through, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would think that, and I would think, look at this age. Like, we all know how, you know, events that happen to such a young child, particularly like under, like, you know, like that zero to five age. And, you know, just thinking about the long-term consequences and impact that this could have if she is not supported in the proper way, if it's not handled in the proper way, or the best way that we know, right? And just like, I have to give her a chance because, you know, God willing, she'll have a long life. And I cannot, I, you know, it, it was, it's just that like, still that motherly instinct of like, she can't, she can't fall through the cracks. Like this is, we're setting the foundation for the rest of her life right now. And, yeah, I, and to be honest, it should be all hands on deck. Like it's not, yeah. it should not be all on you. Well, and it, no, and I, I will and, say and like, I am so seeing, I feel like the community is in relationship to your young daughter stepping up and that is beautiful. And I'm seeing that in what you're sharing with me. Um, and, and the thing is, is that when we learn, like we learn so much as we grow, right? We're learning so right. much about how to heal, how to <laughs> deal with trauma, how to, make our relationships healthier, right? Like everybody really right. is doing the best they can. Um, yeah. And you know, when I look at your younger daughter, I'm like, yeah, this mom's kicking it out of the park. This right. kid really you. vibrant and stable and smart and kind and well, warm and, well, and, I need, and, and wild, but that's also a good thing, right? <laughs> right. Yes. She can be, but it's, you know, it was partly like, also, I, I knew that also her grief needed to be respected and it needed to be honored. And also if she didn't like, if she could switch gears and not grieve, right? Like not, that's not the wording I'm trying to use, but like she could talk about something, be upset and then switch gears in 10 seconds and talk about something, which is the beauty of young children because they're just, they're kind of worried about themselves. Right. You're, and hitting, it was like, you're hitting such an important point, which is why yeah. I knew I wanted to do this with you. Um, yeah. Like so many people that I know who experience traumatic death experiences as young children, whether it up, it like even my own children's father, uh, mm -hmm. his father died when he was a little boy and he wasn't allowed to go to the funeral, for example, something that right. deeply hurt him. Um, you know, we don't want bad things to happen to small children, but when they do, we must hold space for them because <laughs> we can't, we can't like ignore it away. 
No, I can see. So Isaiah died on Thursday and I did not tell Amari until like Sunday overnight. So that was a few days. I get, <laughs> I completely get why someone would want to not tell a child oh, and I, and I, even if they were even if they were doing it in a protective, like if they're, if they're completely looking out for the best interests of the child and believe, well, they're too young or they're whatever, you know, I, I can wrap my head around it because it took me days to be able to tell her. Um, but I can tell you is that her and I are very close and she was feeling a real disconnect when she didn't know what was going on because she knew, she knew something really bad had happened. She was, you know, being picked up by people that she normally didn't see all the time that we're taking her out to do all these fun things. But why are these people at her house? Why is mommy crying? I mean, she was exactly. here when the detectives came to the door. She said to my friend the next day, guys in suits came and made mommy cry. I don't like them. Right. And so it was like, she knew and she was, you know, acting out of character and she was having, you know, she was toilet and trained, but she was having accidents and she was screaming for me and just, you know, and so once I told her, although she was very like, oh, I don't get to see my brother anymore. And like, I, I had someone advise me, uh, you know, someone who's professional advise me on how to tell her and how to have that conversation with her. And luckily she had a really good understanding of death. And it was like, you know, we, she had seen like animals die before and like any time that there was an insect or a bird or something over that summer before Isaiah died that was, had died, we would talk about it and how its body didn't work anymore and stuff. So for a three-year-old, she had a really good concept of death. She knew it was permanent. Um, so when I had, when I told her that her brother had died, you know, her first reaction was, well, why don't we take him to the hospital? Because um, doctors fix people, mommy. And, you know, I said, we can't for this. Um, you know, and I, and I told her and, you know, there was, you know, a lot of, you know, we can't see him anymore now. And, you know, and, and she didn't really, um, but she never, she knew he wasn't coming back and it was a really hard conversation. However, after that, she started sleeping better she started right like for the next few days she was sleeping much better it was like she knew something was up she knew there was all this disconnect between us she knew and i can say like it was like okay this is hard and this is horrible because the sadness in her started coming out over the next few days and she did the typical things that happen when children are grieving where she regressed she was trying to breastfeed again at one point she i saw her crawling on the floor she was three and it was scaring me. It, it was actually really scary to watch that because it, it almost seemed like something had like happened to her brain. You know what I mean? Like it was like, oh my God. But they said that's but exactly what happened to her. enough, kids. something did happen to her brain. Like, and the more we it did, it did. I, I guess. Right. Yeah. And this is where, yeah. again, you know, I know that this is like my kind of favorite topic. Um, but like, what is fascinating about understanding and talking about brain science is that we can actually fix things and we can actually overcome things and we can help people thrive after difficult or adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, as yeah. they're called. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I can only imagine, like, as I'm watching my child regress before my eyes, as you're grieving, that is just, like, so painful. 
Oh, it was, it was awful, but it was also like, I think those are the things that set off like alarms in my head. Like, okay, you, you have to just pull it out for her. You have to just pull it out for her. So it was like lots of hugs. I want everyone to be speaking very gently to her. If she starts crying, like sometimes she had these just random crying fits where I'd have to hold her for 20 minutes and she would just be sobbing on me. And it was like, no. And it was just recognizing and acknowledging, but also then when that was done, she could just switch gears and be like, okay, well, I want to watch this and I want to play with Play-Doh and I want to read a story and I want to... This is like, brain science right here. Like, I'm... So right. I'm interviewing some other women coming up this week, some professionals. Like, the more I'm learning, it's like, I am so grateful that you instinctually paid attention to what you knew you needed to do for your daughter because that's actually yeah. why she's so well-adjusted now because mm -hmm. instead of trying to punish the behavior out of her you actually dealt with the emotions underneath her behavior like you support oh yeah no one was uh, yeah like if it didn't it didn't matter like what was going on it was expected that anyone that was around her was to speak very gently to her to acknowledge anything that she had to say to listen to her and to comfort her and largely the i mean the support system that i had and especially like my older daughter really stepped up and was really, really being like a really supportive, good big sister to Amari and stepping in for things. And so she just had so much love and comfort that it was like, she could take that and be like, okay, well now I can just go play and now I can, you know, whatever. And when she had those moments, it was like, no, there was no option to punish. There was no option to whatever. It was like right now, she is grieving and we need to be there for her. And, you know, and I have to say like that, that kind of stuff, like those really like reactive type things like that, they, they actually didn't stick around very long. Um, now grief for children is really different because it ebbs and flows. And as they get older and learn more things, understand more about the world, things occur to them that didn't occur to before. Right. And so mm -hmm. I know that it's not as simple as like, Oh, we took care of that. Like, I, I know that I'm just talking about that sort of acute phase. Um, yeah, and sure. you know, eventually I did, eventually I did enroll her in a group through Bereave Families of Ontario, um, for children. It's called Healing Little Hearts. And so that was a nice way for her to connect with some other children who had had some pretty big, big losses in their family. Um, and just, uh, there was a, um, therapist that worked with them and, uh, did work with them. And so the kids would all play together, but they would also talk about a lot. And Omari, the, I think maybe one of the good things about this happening when she was so young is like three-year-olds don't care what they talk about. Like they're not putting on filters. They're really, for the most part, not self-conscious. So she'd just talk about anything. And so because we've been so open with her, um, she will talk about things like no problem. Like some of the things she says are just like, whoa, like it's a lot, um, just to hear it coming out of this little, little voice and whatever. But she, you um, know, but, after, but seeing your daughter, she's confident. Um, mm -hmm. she understands her emotions. So she's emotionally intelligent. Um, yeah. she's had adverse childhood experiences, but people have held space for her, your older daughter, you, the other people yeah. in her life. Um, the community yeah. has come together and, and that's what's making this little girl thrive right now. Right. And I think no, for that's sure. a piece that people need to understand. Right. Um, and I know, yeah. and in that, I think about like you and your older daughter, um, 
you know, it, it also must have been, it has, must be challenging also navigating that. Like, so your older daughter lives in another city. Um, she's lost mm -hmm. her brother. You were there with your younger daughter and mm -hmm. she's not your, she's sure she's your child, but she's not a child anymore. Right. <laughs> right. No. And that's, yeah. And so it's like a, it's like a blessing and a curse at the same time in terms of like, okay, well, she can be responsible for herself. Like victim services covered, um, you know, some counseling for myself and both of my children. Although I didn't end up using it in the time that was allotted for it for my younger child. Um, we used, we chose to go a different route with that. Um, but she was good about getting like her own counseling um, and stuff. Like, I mean, she was, she's gone through her own stuff and she's handled things. I think the way that is best for her. And sometimes that involves me and then sometimes it doesn't. Um, but she, you know, she's went through a, some changes in her life, like aside from that over the, the, you know, last year. And she's been really good at still, you know, going to work and still doing what she needs to do. Um, you know, obviously I worry about her, but I also know like she's capable, she's smart. Um, she knows how to, you know, take care of herself for the best at the best that a 24 year old can. Right. Um, and I also think that, you know, it's, it's actually really heartbreaking for me to think about her not having her brother anymore because she was a big sister. He was a little brother. They're just under three years apart. They were always really close, like even from when I was pregnant with Isaiah to like, and I remember when he was born and she was coming into the hospital room to meet him for the first time, like she'd never laid eyes on him yet. And I could hear her in the hallway, like my, um, my mom and my friend were bringing her in. And um, I could hear her in the hallway saying, she was two, and she's like, me so happy, me so happy. Uh -huh. Like she, you know, I could hear her before I saw her. And, you know, and, and that just like was how she was with him from the beginning. Over the years, of course, with sibling rivalry, there was fights, there was, you know, whatever, but they were best buddies. Like it was like uh, five minutes later, they're cool again, you know? And, um, you know, times where they were closer than others, especially like with her moving away. But, you know, even when she was away at university, Isaiah, like I could put him on a bus and he would go stay in residence with her and, you know, visit her for the weekend. Like they were just like that. And she would come home all these other weekends and hang out with him. Um, That's so, so lovely. Yeah. And so she kind of like, like I, it's so hard for me because I don't, I, I can't even feel the way that she's feeling like as to being his sister, but it's so hard for me to even think about them not having each other because they were just like, you didn't see one without the other. Like they were just like this dynamic duo because their younger sister is so much younger than them. She was only around for three years before Isaiah died. Right. So her, most pain, of life mirror, her pain mirrors your pain. It yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's different in the fact that like, you know, I was an son. adult when he was born and he was my child, but he was always like her little buddy. Like, so it sounds like what you're saying is like Isaiah had a really special relationship with you and a really, really special relationship with Claudia. And, yeah, for and, sure. and both of you have lost significantly and it's like, but it's not a competing loss per se. It's just so different. No. And the pain is so like, I can get it. Like, it's like you guys could not possibly like 
Wow. So much. Well, and that's what it is. Like when I think about what she, what I, when I think about the relationship that she's lost, yeah, I like my stomach just turns and my head spins. I'm sure she feels the same about thinking about like as a mother losing your child, right? Like I'm sure she thinks the same thing. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't even fathom that. Like I can't fathom with the relationship they had her losing. It's like, well, like all the memories are, are still there, but the person that she shares all of her, you know, majority of her childhood memories with is gone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was hard for me. It was like, I didn't even know where to start. Which you is know. almost even like, and she's older, right? Like, yeah, you're right about that. I never even thought about it that way. Like your younger daughter has like cute memories of her brother, but like yeah. her whole childhood didn't revolve around Isaiah. No, right? so she's been, she's been robbed. So my, the younger one's been robbed of having those memories. She'll never get that chance yes. now because she has very, I mean, she's limited to what, like a year and a half of what she'll actually remember. She remembers a lot about Isaiah from when she was two and three, but I don't know if those are always going to stay or not. So I've written a lot of stuff down and everything just to have that record of them. But Claudia has now, okay, she had this like life of great memories with him, but now there's no one to talk about. Like she can talk about them with somebody else, but it's not the same, right? Like they're not the one that was there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's been hard for me as a mom to see all that. It's been hard as, you know, whatever. I, I don't know how I've gotten to where I've gotten. Um, you know, I'm going to say, obviously I've worked at it. I did my counseling. I joined a support group for people who've lost children. Um, you know, I've also done a lot of um stuff on my own just trying to not be scared to to, um like not avoid things like to try to face them head on the bad feelings the regrets the sadness the everything that comes my way like I feel like when things come towards me there's a reason that that feeling is there there's a really reason that those thoughts are there and the best thing to do is even if it's unpleasant to just go with it because there's a reason like and then you know you kind of navigate through that whether it's um you know a day or weeks or whatever it is and to just kind of like roll with it that is so important because what i have learned in dealing with what i call a typical grief and my atypical grief is different from yours but it's like that grief that is not like I don't know. I don't even know what typical grief is. Like, you know, I feel like when you go through grief where you've lost somebody in a way that is not socially maybe normal or regular or acceptable, Mm -hmm. you suffer in silence even a little more, which Mm -hmm. means that you're kind of like you're living in the shadows of life, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. but when I avoid my pain, my pain Mm -hmm. just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. When I allow myself to have a day to just cry and fall apart, I come out so much stronger on the other side. So it is that piece, right? Like we want to be positive, but I think you have to feel your feelings, which is super hard. Like, well, it is. And like, I, I mean, I know of anything in this life, anything in life that I've endured is that I knew that this one um, really had the potential to take me down. And so, I mean, and that could still happen for all I know, right? Like, I don't, I don't know, but I know that I'm trying my best not to have that happen. 
and I'm just trying to like sort of do what feels natural and it's just like just do what feels right and that to me is going with the flow and the flow is not always pleasant and the flow is not always um you know feeling so great but it is what it is like if you try to fight it it's like you, it, it comes back 10 times stronger right so yeah yeah it is true you can't avoid it wow so thank you this has been i feel like there's so much more to say <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's so much more to say but thank you so much i am going to close out today saying you know what nobody should ever have to lose a child and yeah this whole planet is full of so much injustice and i yeah. think one thing i always say and i'm a big fan of dark humor now because you know you have to be sometimes mm-hmm like none of us are getting out of here alive. And when you face that actual reality in your mm -hmm. life, because life hasn't gone the right way, mm -hmm. you actually are forced to actually figure out what really matters, which, you know what, it's a, it's a terrible way to have a blessing, but it is because actually none mm -hmm. of us are getting out of here alive. And, you know, I will always say you are one of the most, no, you are the most beautiful person in my life because despite what you've been through and despite what I've been through, like I know that I can share anything with you and that mm -hmm. you will help me process it to a positive place. Not to make me feel positive out of the gate. You'll be like, feel all those feelings for all. <laughs> I'm like, mm -hmm. get to the end. And then, and then what next? What are you doing with this? You are, you have such, you have such grace and leadership in the face of this, extremely adverse life experience that mm -hmm. most that that yeah like you know you bring a human being Thank you. The world. you don't want to lose them so i love you and i'm so grateful for you i actually Thank feel you. like so many people are so grateful for you um and you've raised two amazing children and a third amazing son mm -hmm. um so thank you for sharing yeah he would yeah, thank you no thank you for having me all right i do love you i actually have to say that right here <laughs> <laughs> i love you too so that was kelly mcnab i think what i want to highlight at the end of each podcast is you know, how do we hang on for hope in really challenging life experiences? Losing a child is far more than a challenging life experience. I think that anybody would say it would be, again, something like, how do you get through this? And I think one of the things that stands out for me is the power of connecting with people um, who understand where you're at. Um, Kelly has worked uh quite extensively um, with grief groups. Um, we have a connection that is really meaningful and about holding space for one another. Um, you know, getting through this level of an adverse life experience, it's not something you ever overcome. It's not something you certainly fully recover from. It's something you learn to live with. Um, and when you're a mother of other children, you know, there's an, an, there's an incentive in the face of massive grief to uh, find a way. Um, so, you know, 
I hope that through Kelly's story that you were inspired to find a way if you are somebody who's facing a really challenging life experience, uh, something as challenging as losing a child or extreme or what I call atypical grief. Um, thank you for listening. And uh, this is Hanging On for Hope. Practical. Practical.